Good morning, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and you're listening to Authentic Biochemistry. This is the podcast where you come to hear primary research literature discussed by a scientist and, of course, by a professor. I think I fill both of those criteria. So we have been spending quite a bit of time on membrane biochemistry. And we're now going to do lecture 71. Now, today, we're going to continue our discussion of prenal lipids, that is, isoprenal lipids, which, of course, the major um, biological compound we're discussing uh, is cholesterol. Now, cholesterol is, of course, associated somewhat erroneously with cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, as well as cancer. And I say somewhat erroneously because it's not cholesterol that's really the molecule that induces any of those pathophysiologies. It is the oxygenation or oxidation coupled with a mixed function oxidase that incorporates at least one atom of oxygen into the molecule, usually more than one, that can produce oxy or hydroxysterols. Now, those compounds have the potential to cause a host of pathological responses, but even there, many hydroxy and oxysterols have very important, normal, healthy physiological roles. And we've talked about them in the past. I've spent years discussing sterile metabolism in humans. And I don't expect you've heard all those lectures because many of them were in lecture halls at university. But also, I've been doing it now for several years online with my podcast. So I really suggest go back and look at that long list of lectures. And you, you're going to find many where we, we go into depth with uh, cholesterol. Today, we're not going to talk about the lipoprotein metabolism at all. Um, we've done it many times in the past, and I will leave it for the future. Right now, we're going to be talking about cholesterol transport intracellularly because we're talking about the endomembranous system. So let's finish, hopefully, at least one more element of that. Um, very, very brilliant, complex pathway. Um, okay. Remember, we talked about the endocytic recycling department. Now, that is a series of vesicular transporting vehicles that can occur as and obtain with major levels of intracellular cholesterol, usually as cholesterol esters with fatty acids. And you find this endocytic recycling compartment, or ERC, in most cells in the human body, not all. Cholesterol obviously can move between membranes because it's a lipid by this vesicular, but also a non-vesicular transport system. And that's how it is with all lipids. So you can put cholesterol into a transport vesicle and it will move amongst various endomembranous event ontologies, including those associated with organelles and, of course, the plasma membrane. 
Now, as it turns out, there's only a small molecular fraction of internalized plasma membrane lipids, which actually reach the endoplasmic reticulum. Now, that's because of the peroxisome, which I've been talking a lot about recently, but that also indicates something about the class of lipids that move through this um, endomembranous uh, event. And that is that cholesterol sensing in the ER, as it turns out, because of what we just discussed last time with the SCAP protein and the SEBP protein and the INSIG protein, it works in, in a very ordered, um, almost logos manner to be able to regulate intracellular cholesterol concentrations all the way through the level of transcription, as you know. But that is a slow process. So that's not going to be the process, that event ontology of generating higher levels of cholesterol, uh, net higher levels of cholesterol in any given cell. That process is too slow and migrates too slowly through all the different potential pathways for you to um, get uh, an increase in cholesterol-specific membrane. So that means, obviously, the trafficking of already synthesized and now redistributed cholesterol is how you move it around. Okay, And, and remember, this is not a minor <clears throat> cellular uh, event. It's not minor because the level of cholesterol in the given membranes are what dictate if those membranes function correctly. Plasma membrane needs 50 to 60 mole percent of cholesterol. That's right. More than half of the plasma membrane in the mammalian cell is actually cholesterol. So you can see that, and it's not just there as a precursor to steroidogenesis, for example, or bile acid synthesis. No, it, the cholesterol is there to give the fluidity and the correct topodynamics, the term I use, and if you want the molecular architecture of the sequence of the plasma membrane. And for that to be able to be affected, cholesterol has to be mobilized into that membrane in a discrete sequence of events. And we talked about membrane lipid rest facilitating that process at sort of the macro, still subcellular level. But now we're going to talk about specifically moving around cholesterol. So it's a parallax, right? It's a different point of view. We know that cholesterol is enriched in membrane lipid rafts. And what's the other lipid? That's correct, sphingolipid. So you have high levels of sphingolipid and cholesterol membrane lipid rafts. Okay. Now that's because of the buoyancy, hydrophobicity, and the, the lack of stereochemistry that's available for alteration of electron transfer that mobilizes a membrane lipid wrap without interacting with the cytosol. Okay. If that makes sense, I think it should. Okay. There's a lot of detail there in chemistry I'd like to talk to you about. I've, I have in the past and I will again, but I just wanted to bring that in as a uh, refresher, right? A breeze from the South. Okay. Or in my case, from the North, because I'm in Northern Idaho, right? So let's talk about this non-vesicular sterile transport, okay? There are a lot of different protein families that, are, that uh, contribute to 
what are known as sterile transfer proteins. We find them in circulation, and we also find them intracellularly, which makes sense, right? Because this is a lipid. How's a lipid going to traffic without being either associated with a polypeptide or in that motif of the membrane lipid wrap, which we've been talking a lot about. Now, as it turns out, one of the sterile transfer protein families that uh, we're, well, are very significant and we're going to lock into today is the steroidogenic acute regulatory protein. That's the STAR. And STAR is related lipid transfer domain family. So you end up having an acronym that's STAR-T, right? And the T stands for transfer. Now, the gene that encodes that is actually a member of a cytochrome P450 superfamily of enzymes. Now, cytochrome P450 proteins, I think you remember from my previous lectures, they are monooxygenases. Now, what monooxygenases do, uh, well, for one thing, they're involved in a lot of metabolism of drugs, that is, drugs, ta uh, drugs taking in either ph pharmaceutically or from uh, illegal drugs. Many drugs are detoxified as of senobiotics by these kind of cytochrome P450 enzymes, right? But as it turns out, these same enzymes are involved in synthesis and movement of cholesterol, steroids, and a lot of other lipids, okay? So the protein itself, the STAR-T domain protein, it normally localizes in the endoplasmic reticulum. And its major function is to catalyze the final steps in estrogen biosynthesis, the female sex hormone estrogen, right, the steroid hormone. And we know this because we get mutations in that gene that have uh, been mapped and described in the literature. And those mutations can either cause an increase or decrease in an enzyme called aromatase. Now, aromatase is a, uh, there are a couple of different aromatase sub uh, subforms or, um, uh, from, from, different aspects of the pathway involved in steroidogenesis between androgens and estrogens, okay? And as it turns out, this is all linked together in the pathway, which we're now going to, um, first of all, analyze, and then we'll synthesize back together. <clears throat> so this aromatase activity links to phenotypes where estrogen functions are uh, not fun are not at the level of supporting reproductive biology in the female. Okay, so we believe that the enzymes involved, including aromatase and the star protein, we believe that once the transcripts are made for these genes, there's a tremendous amount of alternative splicing that goes on, and as we'll see later epigenetics as well. So what we believe is, is happening there with the alteration of transcript variants, so these are messenger RNA variants. Now, why is that? That's because you're going to be using slightly different start sites and promoter regions or entirely different nested sets of promoters to be able to promote, that is, the transcription of the gene off the uh, unwound DNA. That is during chromatin retailering. Right? And, you know, whenever we're talking about chromatin retailer, we're talking about the canonical uh, transcription pattern, right? Opening up 
the double-stranded DNA, the single-stranded binding proteins, getting the RNA from our stew in there, and then getting what? Transcription factors, transcription factors like SREs, serial response element type of um, uh, binding to SREs, which is the DNA, to be able to make a steroidogenic um, declamation to the cell, okay? And so we always keep that in mind that, that steroids are, are intimately involved in the change of transcription patterns. But along the way, steroids like cholesterol are absolutely required and necessary and universal for membrane integrity and event domain ontology. Okay. But this transcript variation probably allows slight changes in the oxidoreductase activity of these enzymes. So altering the oxidoreductase activity means you're going to change substrate specificity on paired donors with the incorporation or reduction of molecular oxygen. And that involves a reduced flavin or flavoprotein as one of the donors and the incorporation of one atom of oxygen. So all of this will act upstream or sometimes during pathway processing, including the negative regulation of such processes as macrophage chemotaxis via chemokines. All the reproductive biology, particularly in the female system, and though including testosterone biosynthetic patterns in the male reproductive system. Okay. So we already have talked about genova cholesterologenesis, and we now are going to just start at the level of progesterone. Okay. And these are this progesterone will then now um, either react with CYP21. Now that is a cytochrome P21 um, member of that family. Okay. So that enzyme, that P450 21, which is actually a hydroxylase, will make a deoxycorticosterone, which has its own biological function we're not talking about right now. Likewise, progesterone can react through via the enzyme CYP17. Okay. Which is a, a, another one of these dehydrogenases or mixed function oxygenases okay so when when you, progesterone reacts with cyp17 you make 17 hydroxy progesterone which can then be metabolized by cyp21 to make 11 deoxy cortisol or 7 hydroxy progesterone can be further converted by cyp17 isoforms to Androstenedione, aromatase metabolism of the androstenedione will make estrone, that's the ketone, as you can tell, and then the all-important 17-beta-HSD, that's the 17-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase, which is fairly reversible. Many of these enzymes are, some are, but 17-beta- HSD is freely reversible. That means it's dependent upon substrate product concentrations, right? KQ. Estrone can be converted to estradiol. Estradiol is the major estrogen in human females. Now, the if you're following along, the androstenedione 
can be also metabolized, as I said, by the 17-beta-HSD directly to testosterone. So that's a precursor. That means that androstenedione is a precursor to estrone and then to estradiol, but it's also a direct precursor to testosterone, both of which rely on that enzyme, uh, 17-beta-HSD. Now, now, now that we're not finished, testosterone can also be converted directly to estradiol via the aromatase enzyme. Okay. Finally, there's a 5-alpha reductase, which will take testosterone and make dihydrotestosterone. Okay. And then I say, finally, put that in quotation marks, because there's more potential for metabolism. Here. This is all steroid metabolism. And you can see the tremendous difference between generating testosterone versus estradiol. And I just gave you two routes to do that from a precursor. Right? Okay. So estrone itself, as I said, can be converted to estradiol. And the 17-beta HSD as isoform 2 more often we'll take estradiol and convert it back to estrone, the ketone, from the alcohol to the ketone. Whereas the 17-beta HSD isoform 1, sub-isoform 1, takes estrone to estradiol. Okay. Even though it's the same enzyme, these isoforms function differently because of what? Allosteric alteration of activity, control of activity, and expression, of course. Now, again, what you can do from these multiple pathways is you can make 17-hydroxyestrogen, 2-hydroxyestrogen, 4-hydroxyestrogen, and also uh, further metabolism to 2-methoxyestrogen or 4-methoxyestrogen. So there are multiple routes which can go from either estrone or estradiol through those intermediates, those hydroxy intermediates, to those methoxy intermediates. Um, and that enzyme that makes the methoxy intermediates, I should mention, is a catechol O methyltransferase. So you've left the, left the SEP enzymes and now you're at a O methyltransferase, right? Okay. Which are very important enzymes in ring structure metabolism. So estrogen metabolism is very important for cell homeostasis because depending on the level of estradiol produced and the age of the female, it can either be involved in cell proliferation or an inhibition of cell proliferation, depending on the discrete mobilization as well as the production of all of those estrogen intermediates. So, so this is really important. It's only recently been discovered. But the, in other words, the, the complex pathway between estrone, estradiol, and all of those hydroxyestrogens and methoxyestrogens, right, which we're just starting to get into. Now, in a luteal cell and female reproductive system, we can talk about what this discrete pathway is for progesterone biosynthesis. So you can get progesterone brought in via 
the low-density lipoprotein receptor. And it can also be stored as a cholesterol ester. So cholesterol can come in through that way, endosomally. Uh, cholesterol can also be already stored in the cell as a cholesterol ester with a fatty acid. And when that happens, you remove then that fatty acid via an esterase, cholesterol esterase, or you remove the cholesterol from the low-density lipoprotein, which is a non-covalent association. And you make free cholesterol in the cell. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Not only do you have an LDL receptor, you also have an HDL receptor, particularly in the liver we talk about this, but also in the luteal cell. So the luteal cell will pick up cholesterol from both circulating low-density lipoprotein and circulating high-density lipoprotein. Okay, so now I'm giving you the actual biological, biochemical detail here, not like how your textbooks do it, right? And I don't worry, I'm going to mention all the papers that I'm drawing this from. This is, these are all from published papers. And what I'm talking about now goes way back to 2011 uh, in a periodicium biologium paper published back in 2011. I'll give you the uh, citation uh, in the show notes, as I said. Now, <clears throat> Free cholesterol gets transported once it's in the cell to the mitochondria. And that involves some association with glycoprotein cytoskeletal elements, but also the sterile carrier proteins. So cholesterol can then be transported from the outer to the inner mitochondrial membrane. And that process involves the steroidogenic acute regulatory protein, or STAR, and also a peripheral type of benzodiazepine receptors. Uh, So cholesterol, yes, that's correct. Cholesterol is converted to pregnenolone in the mitochondria by the cytochrome P450 SCC enzyme. And finally, then to progesterone by the three beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase. Okay. Now, also D5 and D4 isomerases, which are three beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenases, are functional in the smooth endoplasmic reticulum. Now, that means that you can synthesize from pregnenolone which is made in the mitochondria via the 3-beta-HSD in the ER, smooth ER particularly, to progesterone. Okay. So all of that is necessary for the ovarian cycle. Progesterone is taken out of action, that is metabolized out of action, by the way, because it's a very potent steroid hormone. Once it's synthesized and utilized, or secreted, secreted, right? That's what I mean by utilized, um, by this luteal cell. It's going to be secreted by the luteal cell and function then as a steroid hormone for the ovarian cycle. But progesterone will be metabolized to a 20-alpha hydroxyprogesterone by yet another HSD, as a 20-alpha hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase enzyme. Okay, so... As with all these systems, you have multiple pathways to synthesize discrete steroid hormones, 
all again coming from the parent cholesterol. And we went through cholesterologenesis the last lecture. So think about all the steps it took to make cholesterol from acetyl-CoA via the HMG-CoA reductors, mevalonic acid pathway, we're called. And, and then all those intermediates, the farnesyl, the C15, and the geranyl, C10, and the geranyl, geranyl, C20 moieties, right? And the making dolichol and making ubiquinone, all those different intermediates in that pathway. Now, you might ask the question, as many students used to in, in lecture, well, does that mean that cholesterol in the diet can be broken down to ubiquinol or dolichol or uh, farnesyl groups or geranyl groups? And the answer is, listen to this, capital letters, no. So cholesterol is not like a fatty acid where you go through a beta oxidation, you can make and break it all the way down back to acetoacetate or beta-hydroxybutyrate or simply all the way to acetate acetyl-CoA. No. So cholesterol is not used to generate energy, you see. Cholesterol's main function is a membrane lipid and then all of this tremendous um, autocrine, paracrine, endocrine hormonal control over entire metabolism, particularly in mammals and then the, mo the one we're most interested in in humans. Okay? So all of this florid nature of steroidogenesis is really... a now, there is a lot of it in insects. I won't say there are and some in fish. But the complete system for um, mammalian, that is human reproduction, has the most florid, detailed accounting of modifications of steroidogenesis because of all the different enzymes involved and all that subcellular compartmentalization. The, remember before, we were just talking about this, for biosynthesis, right, of, of complex lipids and of cholesterol, utilizing the mitochondria, utilizing the peroxisome, utilizing the endoplasmic reticulum, utilizing the Golgi apparatus. Here we've already included the ER and the mitochondria for the production of these really important female uh, estrogens, right? So I just want you to keep this in mind when we're talking so you're not, you're not losing track of why we're doing this. Now, here's a paper published in 2014 in Obstetrics and Gynecology. Now, this is an important thing we're going to finish with today. There is a DNA methylation status of the STAR proximal promoter region. And often it is unmethylated. Now, human chorionic gonadotropin, that's HCG stimulation, causes modifications of histones of the star proximal promoter region. And what will that do? that will change from heterochromatin to euchromatin. And what will that mean? Chromatin retailoring to lead to what? Uh, enhancement of transcription. Right. So that will allow that acetylation of those histones at the star promoter region where the histones are located. So this isn't DNA now, this is histone protein, lysine residues. Acetylation of that will allow the transcription factor CEBP beta to access the response element for the star proximal promoter. And so that mechanism is believed to be involved in the rapid induction of star gene expression in granulosa cells undergoing luteinization after ovulatory luteinizing hormone surge. Okay. 
It's an epigenetic phenomenon that is always happening. This isn't a rare modified uh, effect of the expression of alteration genes due to the environment. Yes, yeah, the environment, but it's the normal ovarian cycle. Changes in the histonacetylation pattern to enhance star gene expression. So the level of histone 3 lysine acetylation, H3K uh, acetylation of the star proximal promoter is increased in luteinized granulosa cells obtained after the induction of ovulation compared with the level in non-luteinized granulosa. Uh, this was Studies have been done in uh, other primates, but also this has been confirmed again and again in humans. So that H3K9 methylation level of star proximal promoter is immediately decreased in luteinizing granulosa cells post-human chorionic gonadotropin stimulation. So it turns over, you see? So the changes in chromatin structure and histone modification, remember it's unmethylated there too, the DNA is unmethylated, at that star promoter region is really important in the proximal promoter, not in the distal promoter. And that's consistent with an epigenetic coding that enhances at a much higher level, set of orders of magnitude, gene expression after HCG stimulation. Okay? So let's see if I have enough time here. This is a really good biological story. No, gosh, I don't. I only got 30 seconds. Okay. I'm going to finish this ovarian cycle next lecture. I'm going to try to finish it today. And then we're going to get into some um, uh, finishing off the logic of this whole system. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry, 29 October 2022. Authentic Biochemistry, as I said. Bye for now.